Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So I know a lot of you guys have been affected by the COVID crisis in India. I have lost two close relatives the past six weeks. It's been absolutely devastating. And I could not think of a better time to chat with Mega Desai, president of the Desai Foundation. She talks about their work in India and how they are trying to help out with the COVID crisis, along with many other amazing projects they're doing. The Desai Foundation focuses on empowering women and children through health and livelihood in India and in the U.S. And it was just so nice to talk to her and hear how we can help people in India. So please enjoy my interview with Mega Desai. are supported by Rocket Club. Rocket Club is the virtual entrepreneurship, coding, and robotics academy for kids age 7 through 14. And guys, my 7-year-old started the class like a month ago and absolutely loves it. They've covered topics such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the coding behind the technology. They've talked about stock market analysis NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, which I'm trying to figure out what that means. And they do all of it through a exciting gamified curriculum. So it's super engaging and fun for kids. They also have 22 additional communities, including coding, robotics, 3D printing, and Rocket Club Live. And they are fully virtual. They have members from 29 different states. And also from England, Ireland, and India. It's super, super cool, super exciting. You can check them out by going to my landing page at www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. And make sure you go through my page so you can take advantage of the free trial. Again, www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. Hi, Mega. How are you? Hi, Ami. How are you? I'm so glad you're on the podcast. This is so exciting. I've been wanting to talk to you, and I love how we met through our non-Indian connection. <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? Um, I know. I'm so happy to be on the, the pod with you. Yay! So let's start from the beginning. Childhood. Where'd you grow up? And what was your parents' immigration story? Yeah. So my parents came... In the late 60s, uh, dad came for grad school. Um, mom came shortly after. I have an older sister who's five years older than me. Uh, we were raised in the suburbs of Massachusetts, of Boston, so in Massachusetts. Uh, grew up in a really Irish Catholic community and uh, went to some of the best public schools that America has to offer and feel really grateful for that. And really admire my parents for building the community that they did. It was not easy for my mom to come here without knowing anyone and not feeling comfortable with the language and just all that stuff. And even, I mean, even grocery stores back then didn't have, you know, what you needed to make uh, our food. So I just, I look back and I'm still friends with so many of the people that we spent weekends with, you know, like Monday through Friday, I was kind of 
the brown girl in a white school. And then on Saturday and Sunday, I was just surrounded by the most incredible family of South Asians that helped raise us, helped instill culture in us, helped carry my faith further, taught us to dance, to sing and learn our history and where we come from through culture. And so just feeling like super, I think about it all the time, how, how influenced I was by that community. And, you know, I, I was just took a trip and one of those people in that community was someone I saw and we're, we've, we've known each other our whole lives. It's really beautiful. It's very strong, that connection, Mm. the childhood connection. And it's interesting, and I want to ask you this, because what you just said is a very common thread amongst a lot of my guests who are all South Asian. I think, one, a lot of us, as we are adulting, and it's interesting, our perspective, how it's changed uh, with our parents, like viewing our parents, understanding their story more now really respecting what they did, the bravery of coming over here at that time is a whole different story. My parents came, same same thing as your parents, but they moved to Charleston, West Virginia. Mm. And so I was just, just thinking about that and my mom not knowing English and she was on the front page of the newspaper in Charleston for being a vegetarian. And so isn't that awesome? I was like, this is amazing. She still has it. I'm like, okay, calm down. I know you're famous. It's fine. And the other thing that you said um, (laughs) that hit a chord was Monday through Friday, I was in my white neighborhood. And then the weekends I was doing, I did the Hindu camp stuff or the Hindu Monday classes. Is that what you were doing on the weekends? No, it was mostly dance. uh, Okay. Yeah. Some cultural thing though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And that was like your, your South, your Indian families all getting together. Yeah. My dad's not particularly religious, so okay. we never really did tons of religious stuff, but my mom right. is. And so she taught me a lot, but the community, like our community was quite mixed in terms of like Jain and Hindu and Muslim and uh, all Gujarati though. <laughs> of course. Oh yeah. Becca, you're Desai. Yeah. It was funny. I, Cause I, I remember, you know, everyone spoke Gujarati. So I learned Gujarati but then when I got to college, I started meeting Indians that were not Gujarati. I remember being like, oh, right. It yeah. was a big place. <laughs> you, got, you guys exist? Like, what? What else is it there besides so Gujarati? I know, but it was funny because we were all religiously diverse. We were cult- like, in my opinion, we were culturally diverse, but we weren't at all. We were all right. Gujarati. <laughs> right. Well, that's it. The language is, is what ties everyone together for our parents' sake, you know? So, like, it makes, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. Everyone we hung out with was with Gujarati. And like, when I got to college, I was like, oh, okay, cool. cool, yeah, cool. Yeah. I get it. I get it. And I'm asking you this because I reflect back on my childhood, my Monday through Fridays with my non-Indian friends, my white friends. I was the only brown girl as well in my crew. I was in tennis. I was in these quote unquote white activities. Looking back at those times, did you ever feel like the other Like, do you think you felt like the other or did you maybe not realize it at the time? I think the only times I felt like the other, uh, and and my two friends have since apologized for this, but uh, uh, two of my friends were like Baptists. And so I was, they tried to save me a lot. And that always made me feel really other. I think the other times that I felt other was when I just simply didn't know like little traditions or how to do things. I mean, you know, like dinner party etiquette that right. I never learned. So I remember going over to my friend Leslie's house and 
her parents having a dinner party and apparently like people were just horrified by like my not knowing <laughs> eating with your hands <laughs> you're like what i don't understand why i can't lick my hand doesn't um, make any sense it was the little things it was never the big things it was never like right oh you're brown therefore you're other it was it was these tiny little like death by a thousand paper cuts type things that made me feel other right you know no one ever said like you know, you don't belong here. Yeah. But just these tiny little moments uh, that make you feel different. Yeah, no, totally. And was there ever a, a point where you're like, God, I hate being Indian. I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to be white American. Did you ever feel that way? Uh, I felt that way when I was spending three months in the monsoon in Surat. But like that, that I remember as a child just being like, I can't believe Ugh. I have to be here right now. Why can't I be at like camp? Um, instead, I'm sitting on a stone floor playing carom with my cousins, you know, and Oh, girl, now, I will kick your ass at Carom. I I'm did sure that you every will. summer. I was every terrible. summer. That's I'm, all I did. I am not a skilled Carom player. All right. um, but but uh, the in in retrospect, as I've grown up, I'm super super grateful for that time with my grandma. You know, like I look back on that time, and I I'm grateful that I was curious enough to sit with her and ask her questions about her life, and both both grandmas, um, and and be able to hear about her whole life and, right. and, and, and my grandfather's life that I was lucky enough to meet. I, I wasn't lucky enough to meet one of my grandfathers, but the other one I was, and I just felt like, yeah, those moments I can tell, I can probably, I probably, I definitely was having those moments where I was like, why can't I just be at like soccer camp like everyone else? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that my parents did what they did. And I think that's just childhood, right? Like you, right. you look at your parents and in the moment, there are a lot of things that you can stomp your feet at and say, Oh, I can't believe I'm doing this, but your parents know what they're doing and they, right. uh, they're looking out for the best in you. Um, if you're lucky enough to have, uh, your parents in your life. So, right. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that, that they, they did the best they could with the tools they had. Exactly. And I think they, they're not only doing the best they could, they just, they, it was so important for all our parents that we understood our culture, the motherland, where we were from. And this was the way to do it, mm -hmm. right? I'm sure it wasn't easy to get tickets to India every year. I mean, it's expensive. Get, take your kids there. And so I look back at it, same thing as you, Mega, like just sitting there three months at a time in either in Surat or, you know, like Boroda, a lot of time Bombay, um, and playing cards and being like, what are we doing exactly? But then now that I look back, I'm like, wow. Yeah. There was some bonding that happened. And now I have a very deep connection to that country, yes. not just from childhood, but also as an adult having lived there. And yeah. so, yeah, I totally appreciate it. So growing up, typical South Asian households, typical Indian household where your parents super strict, were you supposed to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer kind of thing? And then how did they view the dating thing and relationships? So it's funny, 20 years ago, if you had asked me that question, my answer would have been, yes, very typical South Asian family. But now that I've been exposed to more and more people across my life, I'm realizing that there is no typical South Asian family. And I, my family was strict and grades were more important than anything else. And uh, we were very disciplined. We had lots of duties in the household and for our uh, community. Dating wasn't really a thing. But I did have lots of guy friends. They didn't seem to be bothered by that. But dating really wasn't a thing. Right. And then it was funny because, like, don't talk about boys until you're 24 and then somehow get married. 
Right. Uh, yeah. So that was, you know, that was that. Um, but my parents have actually always been very open-minded. So in terms of the the job thing, like, yes, would my f- parents have wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer? Absolutely. Right. Uh, but I think that they saw like that I was so focused on these two jobs that I wanted, neither of which I attained, by the way, Okay. that I feel like they were kind of, they at least were like, oh, okay. Like she's at least interested in something. Right. So, right. Uh, so, you know, they were really supportive and, and fulfilled a lot of curiosities that I don't think a lot of people have the opportunity to do. So I feel really yeah. lucky. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, I took organic chem my freshman year at UT. Cause of course I was like, I think I have to be a doctor and I don't know what else I want to do with my life. Mm. And then after like failing that, my parents were like, I don't think it's going to work out for you. So yeah, <laughs> that, that was, that was the end of my career right there. Yeah. And I know this is a loaded question, but if you could tell me maybe one big, the biggest lessons you learned from each parent. Mm. I know there's a lot. <laughs> okay. So I think the, the biggest lesson that I learned from my mom was my faith, right? Like my connection to God and whatever God means for, for anyone. Right. What I really appreciated about my mom was I was kind of a, a pill about faith. I had lots of questions. I challenged it a lot. I still challenge it a lot. And she kind of was like, I don't really care what package you connect with God in. Just, just do it. And, and I, I so deeply value my mother's persistence and, uh, and never giving up on me, even the years that I was just lost and didn't believe in God at all. Right. Um, so for, for, for my, for my mom, that's, that's it's it's God and culture for my mom. Yeah. And with my dad, my dad didn't care if we ended up being basket weavers. His thing was be the best damn basket weaver around. Right. And that whole the lesson of be what you want to be, do what you want to do, think how you want to think, but just do it with intention, you know? Do it right. Do, it, do right. it right. Yeah. And so that kind of hard work and that, you know, focused energy in whatever direction it is that you're headed. Uh, I think that that is the the lesson for my dad. Two damn good lessons, my friend. Mm. But you, you were a good Indian girl because you did go to these amazing colleges, <laughs> <laughs> Barnard, Columbia, Stanford. So good, good, good Jati girl. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> and you know, during my research, I always look at LinkedIn. You've done a variety of roles in various industries how would you describe your career journey up until now? Did you feel like each turn you were trying to figure yourself out or was each decision purposeful? I think we're still all figuring ourselves out. I think my answer to that is no. I didn't think, I don't think that I had a, a road okay. Um I think that, so the two jobs that I was after when I was in high school, I either wanted to be the press secretary for the White House uh, and remember, this is before social media and before the media climate is what it is. So this is, you know, in the 90s. That's a very specific job title. Very good. I yeah, like it. I, I, I volunteered in a lot of political campaigns and was exposed to that. Um, and uh, and then in college, when like the West Wing came out, I was like, I want to be CJ Craig. Like that was like, you know, that was it. Right. Um, or the second thing was I wanted to be the chief marketing officer for the New England Patriots. So, oh, wow. Okay. Those were the two things that I really was wanted to do. So I, both of those require an understanding of people and right. an understanding of markets and an understanding of marketing. Communication, communication right? Yeah, right. communication, right? So uh, that's what that's that's all of my... And then 
and people, like I went the political route to understand people. And so, you know, I had lots of internships and, and, and in, either in marketing or politics. And, and then I wor- went into advertising right out of college, uh, worked in corporate advertising for a little over a decade, and then ran my own branding and marketing shop for five right. years. And that transition was hard um, because I was doing really well at my career, but I just felt like there was something missing and I couldn't, fig- you. Yeah. couldn't figure it out. And so at first I was like, okay, let me switch jobs. So I kept, I like hopped around. Like it's funny, the last three years of my career in advertising, I was at three different firms, which is not like a good look really. Um, but it was because I, I, I just, I was like, something's not right here. And then finally, when I left, I thought to myself, okay, maybe it's the types of products and the types of things that I'm working on. Because when you kind of make it to a certain level in advertising, you're working on the beers and the sodas and the deodorants and the the things. Right? So I, I was kind of like, is this really what I want to do all day? Talk about men's deodorant? Like, is this, yeah. is this, is this the peak here? Yeah. Um, is this so, my calling? Yeah, exactly. So I was yes. like, I'm not sure. Now I'm not taking away from anyone else that loves that, right? Like, for me, it just wasn't fit. Like right. the, the, the puzzle pieces weren't fitting. So I thought, okay, so if I start my own shop and I focus on brands that have a little more intention, that are that, like, I get to choose the brands I'm working on. And so that was fun for five years. But my turn into the nonprofit world was radically accidental. Okay. I, I just, I don't want anyone to think that it was like some goal of mine. Okay. The, the Desai Foundation had begun you know, 22 years ago okay. and it was a small family foundation and it was operating very much as a small family foundation. And then, and I didn't really, I wasn't really involved. And, uh, 10 years in, we started working on a program on the ground in India where my father kind of said, listen, I, I think that you would have a really great perspective on this. Can you join me when I go to India next time? And can you like work on this with me? And it was just one project and I was hooked. And uh, I never in a million, if you had asked me, if you asked little Mega, if she was going to be working with her dad and working on this, you know, this, doing this work, she would have said, absolutely not. But right. man, am I grateful for yeah. this turn of events. And so we're now not a family foundation. So basically the way we describe it is if you're familiar with the kind of startup world, you know, when you're starting, you're building a startup, you get your friends and family around so that you can build your MVP, right? Your most right. viable products. So the, basically the Desai Foundation spent 15 years building 20 most viable products. And really quickly, who started it? Was it your parents? My, my parents. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so it was, you know, we, we built 20 most viable products. And then when we've spent, invested our own money in those most viable products, we said, okay, we're ready to re- raise our series A. You know, like we're really, we're ready to, to expand and grow. And so we converted to a public foundation. And so, yeah, I took over five years ago. Okay. Um, and um, it's the hardest job I've ever had. I can't imagine. It is the best job I've ever had. I've never failed more. I've never succeeded more. It's been the greatest gift I've, I've ever received. That's amazing. So now currently who's involved from your family? Is it just you? It's me and my dad. My dad's so okay. involved, um, but we have 35 other team members across the country and in Indian, in India. Right. Um, and you know, hundreds of more volunteers. We're in seven States. We serve population of, 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 of several million and 
our programming has always centered around women and girls. Okay. Yeah. And that's really our focus. And it's kind of why my father, sorry, when I, when I think of, when I talk about work, I call him Sam. And, and when I think about when we're like bonding as, as kids, like as, as parents, I call him dad. It's how, it's how we like differentiate, like whether right. it's a work conversation or a personal conversation. Right. Um, it's been really lovely, like learning from one of the smartest, you know, businessmen I've ever met and being able to grow and learn. And there are things that he does really well that I'm still learning from. And there are things that I do really well that he's learning from. So right. it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm not going to pretend like it's not tough, especially in times of crisis where right. we both have different opinions of how to approach a project. And right. what I appreciate about the way we as an organization do our work is because we're both kind of startup people, we approach things like a startup. We're not scared to fail. We're like, okay, let's try it. See what right. happens. Right. And if it fails, it fails, but let's, let's at least try. Yeah. And I think the other reason why we're, we're rather successful is because we don't think that we, like, we don't, we think that we're idiots basically, right? Like we listen to the people on the ground. So which, which makes sense. Yeah. So like yeah. what we offer is how to structure, how to organize, how to build support. And the ideas all come from the people that, that we're serving. Yeah. And they tell us what they need. We're not going into these places and saying, da, 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 this is what you need right now. Right. Uh, what, what we're really doing is listening to them and saying, how can we be of service to you? Right. That's amazing. So a few things. Uh, obviously, you're working in India. You're also working here in the U.S. Are you serving South, the South Asian community here? Originally, uh, okay. we were, um, but we've expanded our programming in the U.S. to be a little bit more focused on kind of skill building and entrepreneurship for underserved right. communities. So we bring a lot of different volunteer and, and entrepreneurial opportunities and, and, and training to underserved communities across Massachusetts and New York. Got it. That's amazing. And so, and then you also mentioned, you know, obviously went to your site, the focus on women and girls is, and I know this might be impossible for you to answer. Has there been any particular cause or particular project that has really affected you? All the time. I'm sure. I'm really lucky that I get to meet a lot of the people that we, we work with. And I'm always, you know, we'll, I block in days where I'm just walking around the villages and we'll just sit and have cha with, you know, just pop into someone's house and talk to them. I mean, my Hindi is pretty shoddy, but I can understand enough. And my Gujarati is really good, so I can understand that. And right. I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to learn a little bit of, of Marathi right now and at least try to familiarize. I'm never going to be able to speak Tamil. It's, it's hard for me, but I at least want to try to be able to understand a little bit. It's a difficult language to learn, yeah. For, for me, yeah, it is. Yeah. So... I think I'm going to say this one program just because it affects every aspect of a woman's life. You know, like, right. we, I guess I didn't really understand how all encompassing something that we take for granted here, you know, which is our menstrual health program, just talking to these girls and how the, the stigmas and the myths that they're taught at such a young age. I mean, forget in India. I mean, we're taught them here too. Yeah. Um, I was certainly not allowed to go to temple uh, when I was bleeding. And I just find it to be so strange that when you're at your most down, you are told that you're not worthy of God's love. And to me, it was just so counterintuitive. Uh, were you told what the original intent was for that? So that is, you know, I've done a lot of work in menstrual health. And so right. I, I'm actually really clear on the original 
okay. you know, where this all stemmed from, right? It right. wasn't that a woman was going to make the water impure. It was that in order to get the water, she had to walk three miles. Right. So it was, hey, like her girlfriend is like, I got your babe, Lou. I'll take it. I got you. <laughs> right? And it was supposed to be a, a, a moment of rest. Rest. Right. Right. But it has been perverted into a, an entirely different thing about being dirty, about being unworthy, about being cast aside. I mean, in some traditions, you're not allowed to touch books mm-hmm. when you're bleeding. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's really just... Um, I just think it has such a profound impact on one's dignity and one's right. self-worth. On and something that is affecting more than half the world and that is completely no, natural. Actually, and- actually, it affects all the world. And let me tell you why. Because right. nobody would exist if women right. didn't. Right. Sorry. Yeah, so totally. totally. If, we, if we didn't bleed, women, like nobody would exist. It actually makes me so mad. And so, you know, the, the part of the program isn't just about breaking down the stigmas and the barriers, which is definitely is. Awareness is a huge component of what we do. Right. But we also make retail quality pads um, and we distribute them in a way that's more palatable. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to buy pads or tampons in India. Uh-huh. I got my first period in India. So, you know, you go to the little like shop, bodega, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, you ask first, they, they're kept behind the counter, like they're cigarettes. And then you have to ask the man behind the counter the, he pretends that he doesn't hear you because he's waiting for all the people in the shop to exit the shop. Mm-hmm. And then he hands them to you. Like you're making some sort of a drug deal. And then he puts it in a bag and then puts it in another bag and slides it over to you. That is in Bombay. That's in the most progressive city in India. Right. So then translate that to what you think the experience is in rural villages. So we've come up with a whole other distribution strategy, right? So it's women selling to women. It's women selling in their own home. It's a radically subsidized rate. It's a high quality product. And that way women can ask questions about, you know, the, their periods or whatever. So it's uh, cause it's just, it's just not talked about. I mean, there is no education. There's no understanding. Um, no, most women don't know how periods are connected to your pregnancy cycle, you know, all these other things, your health, like right. if you're not getting your period, then you should probably go to the doctor because you're probably unwell. And so it's just like kind of these basic hygiene things, especially if they're not using pads and they're using like old rags or husk or ash or all these other things to absorb. It's creating really big opportunities for infection. Right. And so this isn't just about like the stigmas. It's about health. It's about livelihood. It's about awareness. It's about, you know, the 23 girls, 23% of girls that drop out of school after they get their period. It's about the one in five girls in America that stop playing sports after they get their period. It's about the one in 10 girls in America who have suffered from some sort of period poverty over the course of their life. It's about the 71% of girls in India that don't know what their period is before they get it. 71%. 71%. I, I figured it was, there was a number there. I just didn't realize it was that high. When I first heard that number, <clears throat> I didn't believe it either. I was kind of, I thought that was just too high. That's insane. And, and then I asked every single person that I knew that was born and raised in India. And two of them knew about their periods before. And one of them has six sisters. Hmm. So, I mean, my mom didn't know. My grandma didn't know. Yeah, my yeah, aunts yeah. didn't know. You know, it was hilarious. That conversation with my grandma was amazing. Yeah. 
tell me about your first period, bot. What did she say? I'd rather not share that with with, with, the, with the world, but uh, it was it was really like a, a really magical conversation. I have. thought you were going to bust that with some some Gujarati for me. No, I I, I love uh, that cause. I, I read about it. And I, you had a few uh, interviews on it online, so I, I think that's fantastic. Really quickly, I want to talk about foundations itself. Like, what do you? Because people have ideas of what foundations are, right? Mm-hmm. So, what do you think is the biggest misconception about? how foundations run and what they do. And then also, what do you find most exciting about it? Yeah. So I will admit um, the found, the word foundation is unfortunate. Basically, the Desai Foundation converted from a family foundation to a public or like operating nonprofit. I should have changed the name six years ago and I didn't. Okay. And so technically, we're more of a operating organization Got it. Um, which makes my life difficult because people think that a foundation is giving money instead of raising money. Right. Which we, we are always raising money because uh, okay. we, we implement our own programming. Got it. So that is an unfortunate just branding mistake that I made, ironically, as the branding person. I think the misconception of the nonprofit world in general is that we are all kind of the same. And there are like four different tiers of organizations, right? There's the big institutional funders, right? There's the, um, large scale operational, um, organizations. There's the small scale operational organizations. And then there's the people on the ground doing the work. Right. And we are a combination of the people on the ground doing the work and the kind of small scale operational. Got it. And so we're actually a pretty small organization, we're just able to accomplish a lot uh, right. because we are efficient. Uh, we have really, really organized systems on the ground and really trusted partners that we're, we're able to work hand in hand with. Also because we always get local stakeholder buy-in. Got so it. we are never going to be the only people on the ground responsible for the work. Got and it. that is why our work is successful. That makes sense though. It wouldn't make sense to be the only ones doing this. Like we, you would have to partner up, especially in India. Right. But it's not just partnering up with other organizations. It's partnering up with the communities we serve. Right. Right. So in every program, you know, we have not only just buy-in like emotional buy-in, but like stakeholder buy-in uh, from, from the people that we serve. Got so it. it helps accelerate the programs to be really successful. Right. No, I think that's totally smart. We have to talk about the COVID crisis right now in India. Mm-hmm. I know you guys, the foundation has been been helping out and working on that. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the foundation's response to COVID in India? And then what has been an effective way of helping out over there? Because I know lots of tons of Indians over here are like, how do we help? Do we have money. I mean, everyone's kind of lost. You know, I just lost two relatives last month, my mommy and my kaka. I'm so sorry. Within six weeks, it's been a nightmare. And so I'm just interested to hear about it from your point of view. First of all, I'm really sorry. And, yeah, um, it's, there, yeah. There isn't, there are very few of us that have been affected that haven't right. been affected by this. Um, we've all lost somebody in this crisis. The whole country has lost a lot. I mean, how do you, how do small villages recover when so many of the families have holes in them? I know. And how do you have economic recovery, long-term and short-term, when people just don't trust the system? 
how you, you know, it's, 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 um, how can they, I feel like <laughs> sometimes, uh, I think that for us, the response has been around again, listening and action. So in 2020, <clears throat> our original response, because we usually host these like big health camps and these big, you know, um, vocational training sessions and, and, and we have, you know, classes and things like that, that we weren't able to execute on. Right. But we still wanted to serve and see a way that we could make an impact on the crisis at hand. So we've taught some 10,000, more than 10,000 women to sew. So we activated those women and said, hey, if we provide you with the materials and the machine and the framework and some online training, will you make masks for us? We employed about 400 women to make over a million masks that were then distributed to underserved and needy communities wow. all across Gujarat, Rajasthan, Maharashtra, Madhya Pradesh. So that was really exciting uh, to be able to, to be able to provide all those masks and provide those jobs uh, in a time where people were losing their jobs. Right. So that was what we did in 2020. In 2021, when the second wave crisis hit, the first thing that we did was promise our team that we're not, they were not going to lose their jobs. Uh, the second thing we did was try to do what we knew how to do best. You know, I think what was interesting to watch was a lot of organizations suddenly became like logistics masters and we're not super great at that. So we did what we could, but we also recognize that like, you know, the lar these large, massive institutional ones, like I was talking about are getting right. better at shipping yeah. a thousand tanks of oxygen to right. India. Right. So like, like, let that, like, let people do what they're good at. Totally. So what, what we're good at is building programs that create sustainable long-term impact. And so the programs that we built were like our hotline. A hotline is a phone number that you, um, it's like, there's just two automated questions that get you to the right language and the right vertical. And then you speak to a human being and they can answer questions about COVID, about vaccines. They can answer questions about if you have lost a loved one, what comes next? What's the paperwork? What's the aid that you're allowed to apply for? What are the grants available to you? Um, if you are food insecure or there are other things that you need, there's a whole other, you know, section for that. So all these different things, you know, the thing that we, we really, that really affected me when I was thinking about how we can be effective and helpful right. is usually in a tragedy the literal and virtual village comes out to support you when the village can't do that because everyone in the village is suffering and because they can't physically gather who provides that support, who provides that, you know, comfort. And so that's what we tried to do in this hotline. And then of course we did do the oxygen concentrators and the ventilators and whatever as necessary. We work with about 13 hospitals and seven COVID care centers, okay. uh, providing them with, with the, the tools and information that they need. We were able to get 500,000 test kits from America to India, already all implemented except for one, one last shipment is coming um, on the ground. Uh, testing in the rural communities is basically nil. So how do we accelerate that and make sure that people are being tested and know when they, to, to quarantine? Um, lots of different ration kits. Um, our ration kits, we've provided over 10,000 of them. They are not single meals. They are actually food for a month for a family okay. of four. Um, and then also we did these little hygiene kits so people in their home could have access to masks and PPE and uh, hand sanitizer, right. soap, all that kind of stuff. 
right. uh, so that they are, are staying as safe as they possibly can in their homes. Like, How do you guys decide which areas or regions you're going to be focusing on? Yeah. So, I mean, we before, at the beginning of this pandemic, we were in about a thousand villages, uh, just under a thousand villages. Now we're in about a thousand two hundred villages. Uh, so somehow we've expanded uh, in this this time frame. We we work where what we know. I mean, like we are in uh, Gujarat, Rajasthan, Maharashtra, Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Madhya Pradesh, and now Tamil Nadu. And so that's a the, pretty wide range. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and and we are we serve the communities that we we understand their needs for. Got it. Yeah, I mean, which makes sense. Yeah. There has to be some sort of understanding to even build something. So. Yeah. And just if I might add, you had you had said, you know, people here are really trying to figure out a way to connect and, and serve, right? That's, so, ex- yeah, exactly. What, what so can like, they do? Obviously, write a check to an organization that you trust that is a trusted organization and make sure that they're doing what they're good at, um, that they aren't, have, they haven't invented a whole new thing that they're like all of a sudden doing, right? Um, the second thing is don't stop talking about what's happening in India. I know that the news has stopped but the tragedy has not. Right. So every time you have the opportunity to remind people that this is still happening in India, um, the longer that we'll be able to support the long tail, the long-term recovery that is going to be necessary. I mean, we are going to be rebuilding, not just for six months, we're going to be reloading for years. Yeah. So just, you know, keeping it top of mind. Keeping the conversation going for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And third, you know, call your local American representatives and let them know that this is important to you. Um, you know, Biden just said that he was going to send vaccines to the world. Call your local representative and say, hey, some of those vaccines better go to India. Um, right. It really does matter when we put the pressure on from the American governments to make sure that India is being served. Definitely. And and I have to ask, how's your team doing over there? Is everyone OK? Uh, thank you so much for asking. Um, my team is amazing. Uh, they are rock stars. Uh, they've all suffered losses in their families. Uh, we got them vaccinated very early. So thus far, uh, we haven't lost any team members, but we've all lost, like everyone on the team has lost uh, a family member. And, you know, we, what we, our policy has been take care of yourself first. Right. So anytime that you need a day, like a mental health day or mental health week, whatever you need, take whatever you need. Um, and then we've also, we've done some mandatory days off uh, okay. here and there. Um, but what's so been so interesting is we, we had a, a team member who lost his mother and he came back to work like two days later. And I was like, what are you doing here? You know, like, why are you answering my emails right now? And he goes, honestly, Mega, if I don't work, then I don't know what to do. To do. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the team members in India, they are, they are built to serve, you know, to do the work that we're doing. And they're incredible and resilient yeah. and smart and resourceful. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm in awe of them every yeah. day. I mean, the work you guys do could not be possible without them. So hundred percent, let them know we're, we're thinking of them for sure. I appreciate that. And again, this might be kind of an annoying question because it, it's hard to probably put this into words, but are there any ultimate goals in your mind for the foundation? My goal is to kind of put ourselves out of business, right? If we're doing our job right, I don't have to stop. I don't have to keep talking about menstrual health. If we're doing our job right, I don't have to host health camps because healthcare is accessible and available to everybody. If I'm doing my job, so so my ultimate right. goal is to to you know is to solve all these problems. I, I mean, I'm reasonable and I understand that I'm not going to be able to solve all these problems, but if I can chip away and make a real dent 
and, and affect these people's lives. You know, we, the way we talk about our work is we cultivate dignity so that people can dream beyond their circumstances. Right. And if I'm able to do that for 40%, 30%, 20% of the people I serve, it's a good day. You're giving them, you know, whether that's the education, the resources, the support they need in order to get out of whatever cycle they need to get out of. You know? Correct. And that's, that's the best you can do, really. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with the way they respect and see themselves. Right. right? So we do a lot of work. Right. Um, on with girls and with women to make sure that they see themselves reflected in their society, make sure that they see themselves as someone who isn't just, you know, in their house there to serve their, their, yeah. their husbands. Um, but as someone who has a skill, someone who is smart, someone who is, has knowledge to impart. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's what we try to do. I think all humans, want to feel respected and they want to feel appreciated and it feels like that's what you guys are giving them. Yeah. And so that's pretty amazing stuff. Um, okay. Mega, although I can talk to you forever, my friend, <laughs> a fast round just to get to know you a little bit better. First word that, that comes to mind, it can be as silly as you want. What is the best compliment you have ever received? So it's the thing that I like the most about myself and I like it whenever other people recognize it uh, is my curiosity. So anything that is about like, oh, wow, like, you know, that, that kind of connects to that curiosity is, uh, is always a really well-received compliment. The, the few times we've met and, and now after chatting with you, you just seem like you are, you are genuinely engaged with people. <laughs> you're not just looking at, you're listening. It seems <laughs> that way. Or I feel like you are at least. I mean, I think I am. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> this question might be uh, kind of funny because your parents, you work with your dad, but how would your parents describe what you do for a living? And let me just add, I, I asked this to all my guests because every single one of them, their parents just describe their professional journey or what they're doing now in just such a random way. And I love, I love the Indian South Asian description, parent description. So what would your parents say? Well, when I was working in advertising... Uh, my parents used to tell everyone that I worked in marketing, right? Because yep. they don't really see the difference. Right. Um, and then they would always only refer to me as working at the client. So like never at the agency. So like I never worked at BBH. I was, it was Unilever. She works at Unilever. I'm like, yeah. no, no, I, I don't work at Unilever. Unilever is my client. Um, it was just kind of funny. So that, that was, that, that was when so I was. So you've had like a hundred jobs by now, according exactly, to your Exactly. Love it. Done. Um, I, I like that definition. And then, uh, and then now I think my mom would say that I work too much. And I think my dad would say that I, I serve. Both probably true, but fantastic. Great. If you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive, who would they be and why? So uh, the three people that I would love to have dinner with is my dad's dad, who I never got the chance to meet, my grandfather. Okay. Anand Anandrai. And then um, Beyonce, because she's, fabulous. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> so good. Um, and I know this is going to sound really strange, but a 15 year old me, um, because I have lots of questions for her. Yeah. I like that one. You're the first guest who ever say that. Yeah. I, have lots I of think questions. I would want to meet like, yeah, 15 year old me would be cool. I thought <laughs> I was really cool back then. So it'd be, inter it'd be interesting to see myself and be like, girl, calm down. <laughs> what would you pick for your last meal? Anything that Ray, my late uh, great aunt, uh, Rekha Atya would make for me. Literally anything. But it'd be a proper Gujarati pa thali. 
Hells yeah, it's so good. My parents come on Saturday. I'm going to be stuffing myself with Dokla, I think. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? It would be something about dignity. Okay. Um, it would be a reminding people that dignity is this abundant currency that we all have the responsibility to give and to receive. Um, and so it would be something around cultivating dignity. I like it. It could be like a, like a question to make people mm-hmm. think. Hmm. So mine would be something not useful. It'd be a picture of me in front of the cure and it'd be like a, a pretending I'm part of the band. So I wouldn't help anyone in, in the world at all. It'd just be about me. So uh, your, your, yours is more useful. <laughs> and, my, and my final question, now that New York City is opening up, I'm not sure if our mutual friends have ever told you. So I'm a, I'm a, I used to be a break dancer. Ah, uh, I used to be, I can probably do a somersault now and then probably die. Whenever we meet up, which hopefully is soon, would you be willing to have a dance off? So I, I would, but I would definitely lose and be perfectly okay with that. Okay. I, I am not, God did not give me grace, uh, <laughs> but I sing. So maybe if you dance, I can sing and that's how we can battle. By the way, Megan, <laughs> my, my dancing, and you can ask our mutual friends, is lacking grace in all ways possible. I, it's getting scary now. Like my husband's like, you need to stop. And I'm like, I still feel like I look good, but he's like, no, this is not good for you. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to keep going. It's fine. I'm just like all arms, you know, yeah. like it's not, it's not a good look. I've gotten worse and worse. And I'm like, I used to be so good. What happened to me? He's like, yeah, you're in your forties now. I'm like, God damn it. It's fine. All right. Well, we're going to make it happen. My friend. Sounds good. Man, it was so good to talk to Mega. I've been trying to chat with her for a while now, so I'm glad we got to sit down. You guys, please check out their site, the thesaifoundation.org. You can learn more about how you can help out with the COVID crisis in India and all the other great work they're doing. As always, you can follow me at Tucker.podcast, TuckeredOutWithAmi.com. Lots more to come. Thank you guys for listening. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>